Um, Psalm 40, we're going to read all this psalm together. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who do not, does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us. No one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, there'd be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. But then I said, here I am, I've come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I don't seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I don't hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I don't conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. So this is a psalm we have, a psalm of David, a psalm of asking for rescue. He starts off at the beginning talking about being in a pit, being in some sort of difficulty, but being rescued from that. He then goes on to talk about God's goodness, and he declares how good God has been to him. He declares his commitment to God. And then finally, if you see in the last part of the psalm here, it's kind of a petition and asking for God again. He's in situation again where he really needs God's help. And he's crying out to God for that again. He's been rescued from a pit in the past, which is what he's acknowledging right at the beginning. But he's realising that he needs help in his troubles again. Which is kind of a mirror of Israel up to this point in the Old Testament. You have the children of Israel that were um, in slavery in Egypt. And God rescues them from that and takes them across the Red Sea. And promises them that they will have a new land to go into. And then they're disobedient and unfaithful and they have to wander around the wilderness for 40 years and a whole generation has to die out before finally they get into the promised land and everything's great again until they become disobedient and rebellious again and turn their back on God. And then God raises up leaders that then makes them strong again. But yet again they become rebellious and they turn against God and they end up in exile It's a real up and down kind of story of of Israel 
in the Old Testament up until this point where David's probably penning these words. But what was this pit for David? We don't really know. Was it ill health? Was he ill in some way and God had rescued him from that? Was it some sort of persecution? Was it some sort of battle that he'd been involved in that God had rescued from? We don't know. He simply describes it as a slimy pit, a muddy, miry place to be, somewhere that's kind of desolate, somewhere that's isolated, somewhere you didn't really want to end up and dwell in, somewhere that he couldn't get out of by himself. I had a very small taster of this yesterday. I went to Whitstable um, with my family, and uh, we went to the beach there, which is a rocky, stony beach, and the sea was miles out. And for any of you who know the North Kent coast, it's kind of flat all the way out, so it doesn't shelve very deeply. It goes out really shallow, so the sea goes out a long way. And so in order to go and paddle in the sea, I went out with my youngest daughter, Esther, and we had to go about the first 30, 40, 50 yards... And it looked like it was just sort of hard sand as the sea had gone out. And we took a couple of steps into it and sunk about that far into this muddy, sandy, squelchy, horrible kind of muck. And actually, my niece then came running after us and didn't realize exactly what it was and came splashing through this stuff, covering us all in mud. It's great. Um, But it was a horrible place to be, really. It was kind of squelchy and you were down in it and your beach shoes, you thought they were coming off and you couldn't really move and you couldn't go anywhere and it was taking ages to just go a few yards. And that's really nothing like this pit at all, but it was a bit like what the psalmist is saying down the bottom, somewhere that's just miry, somewhere that just sticks to you. You can't get anywhere. And not only is it around your feet, it's up the sides as well and you can't see your way out of it. And he's using this metaphor for some sort of difficulty that he's been in. It might have been a difficulty of his own making. Richard looked at Psalm 51 a few weeks ago, and we see David, even though he was declared as a man after God's heart, he still failed, he still messed up big time. He sees the wife of another man bathing on a roof and decides that's someone he'd like to have for himself and ends up having a child with her, and not only that, ends up effectively murdering her husband as well. And it's not till God sends his prophet to speak to him that he realizes what he's done, and then he pens at this great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart. So maybe it was something of his own making. He talks about his own sins in verse 12 um, in this psalm here. For troubles without number surround me, my sins have overtaken, they've literally caught up with me and I can't see. They're more than the hairs of my head. But maybe it was something external, something out of his own Control. We look later on in the psalm about those who would seek to take my life, those who desire my ruin, that fantastic verse in there. May those who say to me, aha, aha. People that are gloating at his misfortune. We don't really have the right word in English for that, but the Germans have got a great word for it, for looking, for taking pleasure in other people's misfortune. Any German... Schadenfreude, yes. Beautiful word that we don't have in English, but we've adopted, I think, now. I think this is a great uh, reference to kind of Schadenfreude here. People are saying to him, aha, they're looking at him when he's in trouble. So it could be something that's internal. It could be something external from him. We don't know. But sometimes we can find ourselves in difficulties like that ourselves. Things that might be of our own making. I know with our children, certainly with my children anyway, I end up saying things 
that I always declared that I would never say to them because I never wanted to turn into my mum and dad, but I know that I've turned into my mum and dad now, and so I end up saying to them, look, I did warn you when they've done something, and you said, look, I told you, if you did that or you didn't do that, this would happen. And it does happen, and you end up saying, yes, I did warn you, and then you remember that your dad said that to you, and you thought you were never going to say that again, but you do. You know, sometimes we can be self-inflicted in the difficulties. I know that myself, there are times when I just do something or say something or think something and get into a difficult situation, I know that was my own making. I did that because I wasn't doing what was right. I perhaps wasn't following what God was wanting in my life. I wasn't being godly in my actions or my thoughts or my speech, and I end up in difficulties because of it. But sometimes things are seemingly out of our control as well. It might be, I don't know, ill health, bereavement, might be difficulties at work, difficulties in our relationships with other people, whether it be family or friends. And some of those are big, and some of those are maybe small and insignificant, but we all find ourselves in these situations. And even a small number we've got here this afternoon, I'd be amazed if there wasn't some of us that were going through times at the moment, which feels a bit like this pit that David's describing somewhere that we just can't get out of, something that, that is all around us and it seems all-encompassing and we need rescuing from. So, what has David got to teach us about this life in the pit? Okay, let's have a look at a couple of things. Firstly, in the very first three words that we've got in the psalm, I waited patiently. We're used to waiting in life. Maybe not patiently, but we're used to waiting. Maybe it's like this image. We're sitting on a daily basis waiting for a train or for a bus. Maybe we're waiting for somebody to answer our phone call. As for the 40th time we hear those famous words, your call is important to us. So important that we didn't employ enough people to answer your call in the first place. Maybe we're in the dentist or the doctor's surgery waiting for our appointment to come up. Maybe it's something exciting like a birthday or a celebration or Christmas coming up. Maybe it's waiting for exam results. That kind of, I know what that's all about at the moment in terms of essays coming in. Have I passed this one? Have I got through to the next essay? Who knows? Um, Maybe it's something more serious. Maybe we're waiting for, I don't know, results of a a health test, of an x-ray, of an MRI, of a scan that we're having. Thinking back in history, there were people that had to wait in extreme circumstances. I think of the Second World War and those sitting on the beaches of Dunkirk with the enemy behind them and the sea in front of them waiting for rescue, not knowing if that was to be their last day. But the translation of this, I waited patiently. In Hebrew, it's a difficult phrase to actually translate. It's not a passive thing. It's not sitting in a dentist's surgery, whiling away the minutes, playing Angry Birds on your phone. It's something a lot more active than that. The actual translation in Hebrew is more looking eagerly for something, an expectancy, a hope that something is going to happen, a hope of an anticipation of deliverance. It's definitely not a passive, thumb-twiddling kind of waiting. In the New Testament, we're told that the result of the Holy Spirit being within us as believers, part of that fruit that's talked about is the word patience, or translated sometimes long-suffering, a patience that you kind of get when you're sustained under injuries and provocation. It's something that we should be growing as we grow in our faith and we grow closer to God and we grow more through the Holy Spirit. We have this level 
of patience, which isn't a passive kind of patience, it's a real active patience in our lives. And what does he do as he waited patiently? He waits patiently for the Lord. As the New Testament would say, he keeps his eyes fixed. In Hebrews it says, he keeps your eyes fixed on Jesus. As he waits for rescue, as he waits for God, it's not a passive thing, it's active. He's waiting there. But as he waits, what does he do? The first thing he does at the end of verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, he turned and heard my cry. He cries out to God. It's not a sitting there doing nothing. And as we wait for God, as we're in maybe circumstances or difficulties, we're needing to make decisions about things we're not sure about, he cries out to God. And it's not just any old cry, it's an urgent cry. He's still crying out in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. For those of you who know your liturgy well, perhaps from the Anglican liturgy, O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Often used in prayers, straight from the Bible here in the Psalms. In verse 17 as well, you are my help and my deliverer. O my God, do not delay We've got waiting patiently, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't cry out to God during these times. Psalms are full of it. You can go through nearly every psalm. There's a cry of some description from the psalmist, which is one of the great things about the psalms. It's why they're so down to earth. It's why we're using them and calling it psalms for everyday life. And we've got that image of the the washing basket and the washing coming out of it, the mundane, the dreary, the everyday. That's what the Psalms are all about, and that's what David's um, talking about here, and we see it all the way through. Psalm 31, in my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight, yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Psalm 13, a real personal one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I think sometimes in our and apologies for any who are not um, of strictly English origin here, in our English reserved way, I think sometimes we feel that crying out to God isn't kind of the thing to be done. Sometimes we can be a bit reserved and formulaic in our prayers and our petitions to God. But the psalmist is really showing here that it's okay to cry out to God, to cry out to him in prayer. Crying out for help demonstrates our need and our reliance on something other than ourselves. Maybe that's why sometimes it is difficult to do that, to really just cry out to God for help, because it essentially means that we're admitting that we need help, that we need rescue. And as a man, I know especially, and I, will just, I won't generalise, I'll say I am not very good at that, admitting that I need help with stuff. There's the very stereotypical view of a man driving down the road with his wife, getting lost and refusing to pull over and ask for someone for directions. And that's me, okay? And it's because I don't want to admit that I need some help, that I can't do it myself. But this is what crying out for God is all about in this psalm, realising that we need and we rely on God. But the brilliant thing is that he turns to us And here's our cry, verse 1. He turned to me and he heard my cry. And that word, 
in the original Hebrew there for turning is not kind of a turning around because out of the corner of your ear you've just heard some sort of noise somewhere in the building. It's a real active thing again. It talks about bowing down, bending right down, putting your ear right to somebody else's lips like you would with a very small child who was speaking quietly to you or calling out for you. You bend down to them, you go down to their level and come down and listen to what they were saying. And this is what the psalmist is saying God is like here. As we cry to him, he comes down to us and he listens and he hears our cry. So that's the first thing. While we're waiting, we cry out. Secondly, obedience. The verses that we've got here, just following on, verses 6 to 8, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but my ears you have pierced, or literally my ears you've dug out, you've made me hear, you've helped me to understand. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. He's not saying here that sacrifice and offerings were wrong, the sacrificial system was what God had put in to the Old Testament to demonstrate his holiness and to allow people to come into relationship with him. But as Saul found out in the book of Samuel, God wasn't just wanting sacrifice, he was actually wanting obedience. It was all about the heart. Saul goes ahead and doesn't actually obey God in doing something. He offers him a load of sacrifices as a result, but he was disobedient to what God had said to him and ends up being told, actually, obedience is better than just sacrifice. I see that again with my children. I want their love in some way, shape, or form demonstrated by their obedience to me as their parent. It's all very well them coming up and saying, I love you, Daddy, or giving me a gift or something like that. But actually, if I then ask them to do something or not to do something, and they run a mile and are disobedient, that's not really showing their love for me. However, the flip side is that it doesn't mean that I love them as a result of them being obedient to me. I love them passionately, wholeheartedly, unreservedly anyway. But their reaction to me to be obedient is a show of love, which is the same, exactly the same as the way that God loves us. He loves us passionately with no bounds, but he desires our obedience and he desires us to follow him and to trust him with our whole heart regardless. And this bit about obedience rather than sacrifice, I have to speak to myself in this. Sometimes we can get caught up, I think, in doing stuff a lot, especially in church life, doing things, being at courses, running things, being here, which is all very necessary and all good, and there's a reason for that. But if we miss out the bit about obedience, if we miss out the stuff about our heart and what God really wants from us, then sometimes we're at risk, I think, of offering sacrifice without the obedience thrown in as well. And in our lives, what's obedience look like? Well, Jesus said it. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a bad place to start, really, when we're looking to obedience for God. We're looking at a heart relationship with God and we're looking at spreading his love to those around us. So important that we continue to grow spiritually, to grow in our obedience to God. And lastly, the third thing that happens while we're waiting 
is praise. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And then again in verse 5, many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you've done, the things you've planned for us. David had seen God's provision in many ways through Israel's history, some of the things that we've talked about already, their rescue from Egypt, going into the promised land, battles that he'd won, his own personal battle with Goliath when he was a young lad. He can look back on the way that God had been with him and had helped him. He praises him for who God is and what he's done. And that's why we do it each week on a Sunday when we gather. The first thing we do as we come together is we praise God for who he is and what he's done for us. It's something that the psalmists often do through here, as well as crying out. There's psalms everywhere, psalms of praise, usually in the same place. Crying out, recognizing that we need God, but praising his name for what he's done. I think that's the most difficult thing to do when we're in a difficult situation, when we're feeling in trouble, when we're feeling that everything's coming in on us and we're in that kind of pit. We don't know why, we can't understand it. Maybe it's going on for a period of time to actually stand there and praise God, not necessarily for the circumstance, but to praise God in that circumstance. It's just such a difficult thing to do. There was a a hymn writer, Horatio Spafford, who wrote the hymn, you might know it, we don't sing it here very often, but when peace like a river. And the first verse goes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Which sounds like a fine hymn of praise for somebody to pen until you realise what his backstory was for writing that hymn. He was a, a, a hotshot lawyer in Chicago in the 1870s. Um, he'd gone over there, he'd done very well for himself. He's a very wealthy guy owned lots of properties out there, had a thriving business. He was also a very devout Christian as well. And he had a wife, had four daughters, and one young son as well. But in 1871, his son suddenly died. And they were in the midst of mourning their son when the Chicago fire broke out and wiped out his entire property portfolio that he's had, his businesses that were there, all gone. And it took them a long while to get over this. And he decided a couple of years later, 1873, that he would send his daughters and his wife over to Europe for a holiday just to get away from the situation that was over there. And he was about to board the boat with them and he was called back on business. He had to stay behind. And so the boat went off without him. And he was to receive a telegram later that had told him that the boat had collided with another boat at sea. And although his wife survived, his four daughters were all lost at sea there. He then takes a boat later to go and join his wife now in Europe, and as he passes the spot where her boat had collided with another one, this was the moment that he pens this song, this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it's well with my soul. He was essentially saying his soul was in need of nothing. At the deepest level, he'd been provided for by God. 
Does that mean we don't feel sorrow, we don't feel grief, we don't feel pain, we don't understand stuff? Not at all. I'm sure that Horatio Spafford was undoubtedly absolutely racked with all those feelings. But in his deepest soul, he realized that he'd been provided for. You know, the psalmist here says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock. It's a psalm of assurance that tells us that God is there to rescue us. And that might mean taking us out of those circumstances that are in. It might mean that there's miraculous healing. It might mean that relationships are mended. But it might not. And it might be that circumstances don't necessarily change. But setting us with our feet on a rock might be just an assurance of his presence with us, a peace in our lives. And just in the same way that God doesn't need our prayers, often our prayer life is there to change us and how we feel about God and how we relate to him. Sometimes this crying out, this obedience, this praise is actually about changing us in our relationship with God rather than our circumstances around us. So let's just spend a moment in quiet.